Okay, so let me just tell you about our plans for the next few weeks and into September. Uh, We are going to, uh, beyond Labor Day, we're going to resume our study in Revelation. So if you uh, were in our services over the last few months, I began a series several months ago when Shane stepped away um, to work on his uh, PhD uh, work, uh, began a series there. We went through basically the first three chapters a revelation, and my plan is in September we'll pick that up and continue on, uh, probably covering that somewhere in the ballpark of uh, a chapter every two weeks. Uh, so we're going to try to not get too bogged down there, but we're going to work our way through that through the end of the year. Uh, but before we do that, uh, I want to uh, spend the next few weeks uh, through the end of August. Uh, taking some time to examine these issues of fear and anxiety uh, and how to overcome them as a, as a Christian. Uh, I've come across a lot of people lately, uh, inside and outside the church, uh, battling these things, and I thought it would be a good idea for, for us to look at them and kind of define what they are biblically and, and, and see what the Scriptures have to say Uh, about them because these things have significant uh, negative effects on people in general, Uh, effects on uh, that up there, if you want to go ahead and do that uh, slide, but uh, effects uh, and and strain on people's bodies uh, physically as a consequence of not handling the pressures of life in a biblical way, Uh, anything from headaches to insomnia, fatigue, Muscular tensions, uh, increased, decreased uh, appetite, heart palpitations, tics, uh, itching, colitis, diarrhea, ulcers, cramps, other stomach problems, and so forth. So there's just numerous physiological consequences as a result of not handling the pressures of life in a godly way. Uh, People not getting adequate rest, not getting adequate amounts of nutrition and exercise, also experiencing other effects uh, such as depression and boredom and listlessness, phobias, uh, lack of interest, irritability, uh, compulsive behavior, changes in personal and, and social habits. Um, in many cases, because they're trying again to handle the pressures of life on, on their own. Uh, they're they're not, taking, uh, not taking their pressures uh, to the Lord in some cases, they're taking on pressures that God never intended for them to bear, uh, or they're not dealing with uh, sin and unbelief in their own hearts. Uh, they're not disciplining their, their bodies, but even more than that, they're not renewing their minds by the Spirit of God with, with the truth of God. And then they're adding, in some cases, to these sort of normal pressures of life, uh, these additional and extra pressures of fear, anger, and unresolved guilt. And so it just becomes sort of a, a, a cycle. It's like they begin to not handle a trial in, in a biblical way. They begin to sort of fall down on their uh, f- fulfillment of their God-given responsibilities, which just generates a, a sense of, of guilt and, and failure before the Lord. And so then that just tends to compound things make their lives even more and more difficult, and it's just this sort of spiral downward and, and out, of, uh, out of control. Now, you may remember what Jesus said, and we're going to look at several passages today. My hope is what we'll do in the next two weeks is actually go to uh, a couple of the key texts that deal with these 
these, these problems, but you may remember what Jesus said in Matthew 11, uh, in verse 28. Jesus says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So these people that Jesus was addressing were people, you might describe them as those who were beaten down uh, and burdened down. In fact, this word for weary that Jesus uses here means, uh, can be used to, to the idea of taking a beating <laughs> uh, or, or, or speaking of someone that is toiling to the point of exhaustion uh, he, he also describes them as those who are heavy laden, which just uh, means to be weighed down with an excessive load. And uh, uh, maybe a, a, a picture might help you to understand what that word is all about. I, I describe it to people as, as, a, as, a, as a cargo ship that is designed to carry a certain amount of freight, but it's got more freight loaded on the boat than it was designed to carry. And so... It's like the, the boat is, is down and the water is, is splashing up and over into the boat because of these excessive burdens. And, of course, with all, all, all kinds of things in people's lives, robbing them of what Jesus describes here as uh, soul rest, rest for the soul or peace in the soul and heart. And you'll notice what God's solution is for that. For this sort of noise in the soul, two things really. First of all, Jesus says, come to me, come to me, which is uh, something that we fail to do. Certainly the, uh, something that the, Lord, that the world fails to do, but even believers sometimes talk about their worries. They talk about their problems. They talk about the things that are on their mind, but they don't actually carry those things to the Lord, right? So that's why Scripture commands us with our anxious thoughts and our cares and concerns to pray to God, right? I mean, we're told to do that because our tendency sometimes is to not believe that God is near, to not believe that God cares or that God understands and knows. And so initially, we just we have to come, right? So Jesus gives this, this appeal, this invitation, come to me. And then not just that, but he says to come and be like me or, or to come and to, to imitate me. Or you might even say to come and to be willing to be governed by Christ, to be brought under control. That's what he uses this word. That's the, the, the idea of this word gentle, uh, to be willing to be humble or to be humble in heart or to be even, even lowly. So that's really the only way to have soul rest. The only way to really have soul rest is to come to Christ and to follow Christ uh, faithfully. So we come to Him and then we purpose to be, to be like Him. So this morning I just want to, again, I just want to introduce this topic. We'll get to the, the remedies later on. We'll again look at some key texts dealing with both fear and anxiety, but I just want to start with the obvious, and the obvious is that the world is full of people with anxious and fearful hearts. Uh, our country is full of people with anxious hearts, and yet we are, comparatively speaking, we're a very blessed country, right? We're, we're in a, in a uh, 
a prosperous place for the most part, and yet the um, additional measures of safety and the additional income and the additional security is not necessarily translating to more peace, right? In fact, people actually are, it seems like, the more comfortable that people are, the, the more the anxiety, right? And the more, the more fear, and that just tends to, to be ex- accelerating. In 2017, uh, 32 million people in the United States were prescribed anti-anxiety medication. That's roughly 1 in 10, uh, the U.S. having about, at that time, about 326 uh, people total. Uh, Of course, if you include all psychiatric drugs, if you wrap into that number, uh, ADHD drugs and the antidepressants and uh, antipsychotics, that would jump to 1 in 4 people or 80.2 million people, Uh, which doesn't mean that these medications are inherently bad or sinful, but it does point to a widespread uh, problem. And when we think about fear and anxiety, we also realize that there are different kinds of fears, uh, different kinds of of concerns. I was just thinking last night about these various individuals that I've either talked to or met with in, in the last few weeks, and, and, and none of them share the same fears. <laughs> none of them actually have the same anxieties. Now, there's some, there's some general uh, overlap in some cases, but, but the reality is we have different kinds of concerns. We have different, different kinds of, of fear in, in our lives. We have what we might call individual kinds of fears and anxieties where it's kind of a, uh, I don't know, you might say it's sort of a personal preference sort of thing, for example, uh, a fear of, of dogs or a fear of, of spiders. All those, is anybody not afraid of spiders? You know, it's a, okay. You're not afraid. Okay. So there are those that are not afraid of spiders. You might have a fear of locking yourself out of the, the house, or you might have a, a fear of having your identity stolen. Uh, but these fears are often shaped by a person's own personal experience, or, or in some cases, in, in the way in which they grew up. So Usually, you know, in, in these cases, sometimes people will have a fear of something because they've already experienced it. <laughs> so it's not something that everybody's been through, but they've been through it. You know, they have lost their keys, and so then they go on, and they have this ongoing anxiety and fear about having to go back through that. Then there are fears and concerns that we might say are more universal. That is to say they are shared by nearly every human on the planet. For example, a fear of death, uh, a fear of being alone. Uh, a, uh, the fear of losing a loved one. Uh, almost all people have some aversion to these, these sorts of things. And it's just part of being human and living in a fallen world. Uh, or, or what about, you might say, what about parents worrying about their children? I, mean, I would imagine that's a, that's a common thing. It doesn't matter if you live in the United, United States or in some other country, but that would tend to be uh, something that, that, that would be a, a common form of anxiety and worry. In fact, if you are a mom, how many days a year do you think about your children? <laughs> okay, right? Is there a day that you don't think about your kids or finances? I asked this uh, our men's group on uh, Thursday and, and Friday morning. I said, you know, fi- finances for, for, for husbands, how many days out of the year do you think about finances? And they're all like, every day. You know, they're like, days? <laughs> they're like, hours? I mean, what do we, you know, you want to break this down even more? And, and it's just, that's just the reality. And again, it's not a, 
sinful thing that we necessarily think about finances. It's not necessarily a sinful thing that moms think about their kids. But you can see how easily it would be for us to fret about these things, right? And we'll talk about the difference between uh, next week's sinful fear. And, and there, not every fear is sinful. And, and not every, uh, every concern is not necessarily sinful anxiety. In fact, there is a, there's a, an appropriate concern that we ought to have about certain things. Paul said uh, more than once that he had concern for certain things, but Paul did not admit to sinning in those things or having some sort of anxiety about those, those issues. So we'll try to make that, that uh, we'll try to distinguish that as we, as we get there. But you can see, if you're already thinking about something on a daily basis, then it would make sense how easily it would be to go from thinking about something to worrying about it and, and not trusting God in, in, those, in those areas. Then there are fears that are socially informed. Uh, every social group teaches its members that there are things out there in the world to be scared of and things not to be scared of, and it teaches individuals how to approach and how to respond to and handle certain fears. And so we need to recognize that the, the effect that the culture has on us and how the culture informs and influences us as to what we should and should not fear or what we should and should not worry about, uh, which isn't necessarily, again, a bad thing. Uh, it's, it's good to have people around you helping you to understand danger and what you ought to be afraid of and what you ought to prepare for so long as those things are in keeping with Scripture. Uh, and when people that have gone before us or are around us help us to understand and deal with these kinds of things in a godly way, we're, we should be thankful for that. But sometimes the people around us can be too concerned about certain issues, and then they try to pass on to us their additional anxiety, right? So sometimes you get around certain people, and they're talking about the things that concern them, and they want you, it's like they want you to adopt their anxieties. They want you to be as concerned about things, uh, the things that they're concerned about, and you walk away from those conversations sometimes, and, and, and your blood pressure's up. You know, you weren't even thinking about this thing, right? But now they've gone on and talked about what they've gone through or what their third cousin removed went through or what they researched on the Internet. And then now it's got you all up, upset and, and anxious. It's not, it's not very helpful. It's also important to note that sometimes our fears are influenced by what we see and hear in the media. All right? So we have things constantly being, you might say, disproportionately reported um, uh, the amount of reporting and the level of emphasis placed on frightening things can, can exaggerate our fears and anxieties. Uh, interestingly, the top two causes of death in the United States in 2017 were, what do you think? Top two causes of death. Heart disease and cancer, right? Heart disease and cancer. But these are not the things that most people are afraid of, at least not in the same way that we are fearful of things such as school shootings or getting E. coli from romaine lettuce, right? So it's like, I mean, we should have maybe be thinking about heart disease, right? Maybe thinking about cancer and those types of things. If we were to just look at the statistics, right? But we tend to get focused on certain things, right? And sometimes those certain things are driven by the media, right? It's the thing that's in front of us. It's the article that we just popped up, 
right on the computer screen. It's the conversation that we just had with a coworker. It's something that you know uh, 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 showed up in, a, in, a, in our in our news feed. So real threats do exist, but it seems that we are often consumed at times with the things that are actually less risky. So we learn to be overly consumed with things that are not as dangerous, and at the same time, we are blind to the things that should actually concern us. So there are legitimate, again, concerns that we ought to have as believers. Sometimes those concerns get sort of sidelined and clouded by the, th- the fact that we're being consumed and worrying about things that, relatively speaking, aren't all that important. Okay? So exactly what are Americans afraid of? Well, according to an annual survey, this is the Chapman University Survey of American Fears. They've been doing this for the last four years. Top ten things that we fear the most. And uh, go ahead and pop that up there, uh, Charlie. This is their... Uh, and, you, and you read these things, and the first, first question I was like, now who did you survey? <laughs> who are these participants, right? But they claim it's, you know, a, a slice of the American population, all these different representations. They give a full list of all the options. So they suggest things, and then basically people are looking at this massive list of fears, and then they're, they're prioritizing these things. But uh, corrupt government officials, number one, which just ha- so happens to be for 2016. So the year before this, this was also the number one thing uh, listed. So government corruption. Uh, American Health Care Act or Trump Care, it's fascinating, in 2016, guess what it was? Obamacare. <laughs> right? So it's like, okay, so we have one thing and we're anxious about it, right? And then we get an alternative and we're anxious about it, Right? Government officials, again, it's interesting because you have certain people serving and then you'll come back later and we replace those people, right, with other people and then we're just as anxious, okay? So it just, it just reveals that we're not really getting down to the heart issue of this. Um, pollution of oceans, rivers, and lakes? I mean, <laughs> I don't think much about, I don't know, not me. I'm not too worried, honestly. I haven't given that a lot of thought lately. P- pollution of drinking water? Um, not having enough money for the future. Now, I hear a lot of that, um, and I even hear that, you know, again, from people within our own church, um, just struggling with contentment and, and, and not, not just what they have now, but really this, what's, how are things going to turn out? You know, what about five years from now? What about when we get to be 65, or what if we live to be 90 and those kinds of, of concerns? High medical bills, uh, US, the U.S. will be involved in another war. And again, that's the one that consistently makes the top uh, 10 list, but the reasons for that change. So it just depends. Is it, is it uh, again, like number, number nine, is it, is it North Korea? <laughs> you know, it just depends on what's in the news, right, um, as to what those particular threats are. Global warming and climate change. Uh, air pollution, so uh, it's interesting. Some of these things, those that are more sort of environmental things, were not really uh, much a part of the list from, from the previous year. And so, again, it just shows how much people are vacillating from year to year, even. The things that are going on right here, these are the concerns, these are the fears, the anxieties that are driving our lives. And then the next year, depending on the circumstances, are different. They just transfer one thing to the next, Right? Um, and then some of you may have heard in recent weeks about Trump anxiety disorder. Uh, this actually was out 
I had a couple articles about this, but some people claiming that everything the Trump administration does is a harbinger of the apocalypse. So everything that he's doing is heading us into Revelation, um, comparing Trump as a mentally abusive parent and blaming him for driving the nation into a mental crisis, right? So you have some psychologists that are suggesting they're seeing people come into their offices and when they start talking about their issue of anxiety and worry, this is one of the things that they're bringing up, which again, I think is tied to that thing off of the list, which is really the corruption of government officials. I'm not saying that Trump is, is, is uh, necessarily corrupt. I'm just saying those two things seem to, to fit categorically into the same, same area. So it's not an official diagnosis. Uh, certain psychologists say the, that symptoms include a feeling, feeling a loss of control and helplessness and fretting about what's happening in the country and spending excessive time on social media. The people that, even these psychologists are saying, the people that are coming in that are describing these fears and phobias and anxieties tend to be people that are spending a lot of time on social media. Of course, Trump supporters have their own term for a malady that they see afflicting only reactionary anti-Trump progressives called Trump derangement syndrome, right? So this is the, this is the flip side of that, right, where they're, they're claiming that the people on, on the left have really got, they, they're the ones with the syndrome, right? It's not the, not the Trump supporters, and so they're firing back at that. But on both sides, people are worrying about the state of our nation, In fact, two-thirds of Americans say that they are stressed about the future of our country. Naturally, not all for the same reasons. And don't forget, because it's easy to lob bombs, right? It's easy to go, yeah, those people out there, right, that are all consumed with these things, right? But evangelicals have their own subset of fears and anxieties. Christians fear things such as living in a relativistic or a pluralistic society, Uh, living in a society that's growing more and more intolerant of our faith, Uh, the secularization and the effects of that on our children, Uh, anything that that we believe to be a threat to our family values, whether it's transgenderism, pornography, abortion, homosexuality, same-sex marriage, and so on. Are these legitimate dangers? Yes, right? These are legitimate dangers. But can these things become... Controlling dangers that blind us to the real issues and needs or, or things that derail us as believers from the mission of making disciples or that consume our focus and prevent us from walking by faith, walking in love, and being obedient to Christ. Yes, right? So that's the challenge. The challenge is that there are things that we should be concerned about. But again, are we taking those things to Christ? Are we, are we, are we carrying our burdens to to God, and are we walking by, by faith in his, in his word? So I think we can all agree fear and anxiety are common to man struggles, that fear and anxiety are things that every human being on this planet experiences to some degree or another, and if indeed fears and worries are universal, then we anticipate that this is something that is going to be plastered throughout Scripture. Right? I mean, if this is such a common thing, then you would expect Scripture to be speaking about this, and that's exactly what we find. What we find is that the Bible is speaking over and over and over again to this profound experience. That's exactly what we find in, in the Scriptures. 
what we find is that God speaks to fears, He speaks to anxieties, and He speaks to them a lot. From Genesis to Revelation, God regularly beginning conversations with people, with His people in particular, with words like this, fear not, fear not. Isaiah 35 verse 3 says, encourage the exhausted and strengthen the feeble. It sounds like uh, so this is actually Hebrews chapter 12 because sort of pulls in this as a, as, a, as a reference, speaking about the discipline of the Lord. It says, encourage the exhausted and strengthen the feeble. Say to those with anxious heart, take courage, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. The recompense of God will come, but he will save you. Uh, we saw this in Revelation when we were looking at that and that, that vision of the ascended uh, and glorified Christ and how John the Apostle sort of reacted to that. It says in Revelation 1.17, uh, John says, When I saw him, Christ, I fell at his feet like a dead man, and he placed his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one, and I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and of Hades. Do not be afraid. Time and time and time again, do not be afraid. Uh, Joshua 1, be courageous, be strong. And the Lord says those things to encourage and to embolden people who are weakened by their fears. And not only does God recognize that frightened people need that care, that they need that special care and counsel, but he also makes sure that he is the first one in line to give it. So he is the one saying, you need to come to me with those things. He understands them, he knows them, he knows it's a common experience, and he has the answers for it. So God says to us, do not be afraid, do not be anxious. Uh, According to Philippians 4.6, be anxious for nothing, right? Be anxious for nothing. Now, how does God say that to us? Is it some kind of... Is it some sort of authoritative command coming from, from this holy God that is essentially telling us to just stop it, to just sort of this, this like a very uh, sort of a calloused command? Or is it a pastoral encouragement from God who knows his children and he knows that his children live in these, these dangerous places? In other words, is this a, a protecting and a, and a caring comment? Well, we get a hint at that in Luke chapter 12. I want you to look at Luke 12, turn there, and we're going to come back to this particular passage next time in more, in more detail. But it's a passage, and it's one of the reasons why, because again, we could, go, we could go to so many places to look at this, this uh, topic, of, especially this topic of fear, uh, so many places in the Scriptures we could look at, uh, but this particular one is interesting because it addresses both fear and anxiety. And so we're going to walk through this next time, but I want to go ahead and kind of uh, sort of get it into our minds. It's a great complement to, to what Jesus had to say in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6. And as you, as you look, look at it, you'll see some of the uh, sort of the common ground between those two passages. But Luke chapter 12, let me just read uh, part, parts of this. Verse 1 says, Under these circumstances, after so many thousands of people had gathered together, that they were stepping on one another, Jesus began saying to his disciples, first of all, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy, but there is nothing covered up that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known. Accordingly, 
Whatever you have said in the dark will be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in the inner rooms will be proclaimed upon the housetop. So one of the things that, we'll come back to this, but one of the things that should stand out, if you, if you, one of the antidotes for fear is a clear conscience. One of the antidotes for fear is deal with the hypocrisy, right? Because if you're not living with the reality that everything that you're doing is going to be exposed, then that drives you towards these issues of anxiety and, and, and guilt and cover-up. So it's like you've got to deal with that. You've got you to deal and be on guard against hypocrisy. And then he says this, verse 4, I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that have no more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear the one who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Okay, so what does that tell you? If you're going to be dealing with anxiety and fear, you have to do what? You want to drive out sinful fear. One of the things you're going to have to do is what? Make the fear of the Lord a priority, right? You're going to have to fear Him above everything else. When you fear God, that pushes out other fears, right? Then he says this in verse 6, Are not five, uh, not five sparrows sold for two cents, yet not one of them is forgotten before God. Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear. You are more valuable than many sparrows. And then drop down to verse 22. He said to his disciples, For this reason I say to you, do not worry about your life as to what you will eat, nor for your body as to what you will put on. For life is more than food and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens, for they neither sow nor reap. They have no storeroom nor barn, and yet God feeds them. How much more valuable you are than the birds, and which of you by worrying can add a single hour to his lifespan? If then you cannot do even a very little thing, why do you worry about other matters? And so again, it's all about perspective. He actually uses this, uh, this uh, uh, analogy here of, a, of the ravens not having uh, barns to store up what they need, and yet this will refer back to this rich man that he speaks of that says, I need to tear my barns down and build more. <laughs> I need more barns, more storehouses, Right? So we'll get into that next time. Then he says, verse 27, Consider, consider the uh, lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. But I tell you, not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass in the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, how much more will he clothe you? You men of little faith. And do not seek what you will eat and what you will drink, and do not keep worrying for all these things the nations of the world eagerly seek, but your Father knows that you need these things. But seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. And then notice verse 32. He tells his disciples, Do not be afraid, little flock, for your Father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. So it seems pretty clear from this passage, that the Lord isn't just barking out some kind of command about not fearing. Rather, He knows, He cares, He understands our struggle, and He graciously calls us to deal with our fears His way. Now, before we look at, again, these issues of fear and anxiety in detail, I thought it might be helpful for, to first address the broader topic of emotions. Um, so I want to do that and just give you sort of a brief overview because I think this, you, you've got to have, I think if you have a, a, 
an understanding of emotion in general, it'll help us to sort of get into the, the details of these two particular uh, issues of fear and anxiety. So I just want to point out just this morning just three things. Uh, what, do, what do we know about emotion in general? Um, and let me just give these three things to you, and then that's all we'll, we'll try to cover this, this morning. First thing is this. We know that emotion serves a useful purpose in our daily lives. Okay? Uh, in fact, the word emotion uh, originated from this uh, Latin term. Uh, it has a, a prefix on it, which means out, and then the main term means to move. And so it, you put the two together, and, and the two combined means to move out or to stir up. And so the term motivation comes from this same root, which means that emotion and motivation are closely associated and woven together. And this is, what, this is exactly what emotion does. Emotion prepares the mind and the body for action, right? And this is, this is key. The primary function of emotion is to prepare us to do something to prepare us to, to act in some way. And so emotions are, are both responsive because we typically think something happens and then we have an emotion. But the, the primary purpose of emotions is, is preparatory. In other words, they're, they're, they are part of our response to our experiences, but they are also designed to motivate us toward particular ends. Okay, so we've, we've got to... To, to realize that, that that emotion, somebody described emotion as, as, a, as a, um, a, a blunt push in a, in a nonspecific direction. It's like it's, it's energizing you to do something. The question is, um, where is it pushing you? What is it pushing you towards? And is the emotion itself even appropriate, right? So are we actually emoting in the right way? Uh, that, that is to say that if we are grieved about something, is it something we should be grieving about, right? I mean, Shane covered this in Thessalonians when he was talking about those who, who were grieving as if they had no hope, right? So they were grieving. Believers grieve. It's not to say that believers or Christians don't grieve at times. There's an appropriate emotion that we ought to have. Uh, Christ grieved about certain things. The question is, is what we're grieving about Significant? Is it something we should be grieving about? Or even if we should grieve over it, how excessive should that be? How, to what does extent should we grieve? And so we just got to realize these emotions are important. I mean, a lot of times I, I feel like that in, in the biblical counseling world that emotions sort of get uh, minimized. You know, like emotions aren't important. I'm like, no, emotions are very important. Now, we don't, we don't rely on them. They're not authoritative. Emotions are not, um, you might say, they're, they're, they're not trustworthy at times, right? I mean, there are times when we are feeling something or we're having a particular emotion, but yet we have to always evaluate those things in light of Scripture. And there's times when we say, I know I feel this way and I know I'm emoting this way, but I've, I've got to make the right decision here. And so... We're not completely leaning on these things. At the same time, these are significant uh, for us to understand because they have this particular purpose. They, they motivate us to, to, to do things. Secondly, we also know that there is a process in which we experience emotion. And even though there may be physical or physiological components at work, it is mainly our thoughts or our attitudes 
um, our, our beliefs that determine what we feel. So our emotions primarily come from what we call maybe the inner man or our immaterial heart. The mind of man and or the conscience of man that produce attitudes which lead to particular emotions and feelings. And so this is sort of the, the process. And go ahead and put this up here. Um, yeah, there it is. So this is kind of, let me just walk you through how this unfolds in our lives. And again, this is not just Christians. This is, this is how emotions, this is how it works. Okay, so stuff happens in life. Okay, things happen. You can't keep things from happening around you. And God doesn't call us to live in, in sort of a, a bubble or some Christian convent. And so things are happening, coming at us on a daily basis. Again, we looked at some of those earlier, sort of these pressures of life, all these things going on in our families and at work, uh, things that are going on in, 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 in culture and on a much bigger scale, and then very specific personal things that are happening to us on a daily basis. And we can't, we can't call a timeout. We can't stop that stuff from happening. So these things are constantly coming at us nonstop. Some of those things that happen to us are, we would consider at least to be pleasurable. Some of those things not so pleasurable. So from your standpoint... And again, this is an individual thing because for you, what you think is a good thing, I might think is a bad thing, <laughs> right? So it's, it's, it's really from your standpoint and perspective, you see some things as good and you see other things as, as bad. Some of those bad things that happen, things like people hurting you or disappointing you, um, uh, best friends deserting you, health failing, uh, jobs evaporating, you, you take a test, you fail the, you fail the exam, uh, the, the, the pressure rises and the heat comes from all angles. Uh, situations come with not only difficulties and temptations, but also blessings. And so it's not, again, it's not always the, 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 the bad things that come. It's sometimes they, the, the blessings that come that trip us up. And so things happen, and no matter what is going on, you are always thinking. Okay, this is the part that's so important. Right, Your heart never stops thinking. You never stop trying to make sense out of life as it unfolds. Right, Because we are made in the image of God and we are, by design, interpreters. Right, We are constantly interpreting the things that are going on around us and the things that are happening to us. We're not dogs, we're not cows, we're not peacocks. Right? Uh, we're not unlike animals who simply eat their food and eliminate their food and, and reproduce uh, and, and sleep, right? We, we constantly, as human beings, are trying to, to, dis- to discover why things happen the way they do. We're always trying to put these pieces together. We, we want to know why we are here, and we want to know what this thing called life is all about. And so our hearts never stop trying to make sense out of, out of it all. Whether we are conscious of it or not, we are constantly talking to ourselves, we are constantly assessing situations, we are evaluating circumstances and people, and thinking about things at an incredible rate. I mean, you just think about the, 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 the capacity that we have to receive information and process those things and think about those things and emote certain things. And then, again, sometimes we're doing that and then literally something happens 
or another thing pops up on our screen and we immediately start processing that thing, right? And where that's coming from and what we're expected to do as a, as a result of that. And then putting and piecing all of these things together. And sometimes the reality is Christians are telling themselves as they are thinking about all this stuff going on in their lives, they're having those kinds of thoughts like, this isn't fair, right? Or this doesn't make sense. Or maybe even where is God in all of this? Or what about I deserve better than this? Or this shouldn't be happening? Or, or I can't handle this, right? It's, it's too much. We're constantly talking to ourselves, and that's what the Bible means when it speaks of the heart, right? The thoughts that we say to ourselves, we say in our hearts. The heart is where we do our thinking, our talking, our sorting, and interpreting of everything that life is throwing at us. And our actions stem from what we're feeding our hearts, right? What we're thinking about and what we believe in our hearts, because the heart is the control center. So that means that when we sin, it's never random, okay? It might seem random to us, uh, but that's because we can't see the heart, right? And so when we see someone do something and we think, well, that was kind of off the wall or that was kind of, you know, unexpected or whatever, it's, it's not so unexpected. Not if you could see their hearts, right? So there's not... We might say there, there is no random sin. Uh, and in a sense, we say there, there, is, there are no random acts of violence, right? There, there are no random outbursts of anger. There are no random flood of tears. There are no random flights of fear. It's, it's not random because you were already thinking something in your heart before you felt something and sometimes long before you acted on it, right? So, again, this is so central to getting this Getting a, getting a handle on anxiety and fear. When you realize that the, where thinking fits into this, this process of, of emotion. So you can't stop from things from happening all around you, and your heart never stops trying to make sense out of it, and that inevitably impacts how you emote because your feelings feed off of your thinking. So based on what you've been thinking you begin to experience fear, anxiety, worry, depression, envy, uh, anger. You think about the envy. I was just talking to somebody this week about Psalm 73. And, and, I mean, what's the shift in Psalm 73? I mean, one minute the psalmist is saying, I mean, I literally was almost like apostatizing. I mean, like I was slipping and about to just turn away from it all because he was thinking about how the, the wicked were not dealing with all the troubles and the trials that he was going through, right? And so he begins to think about them and compare his situation to their situation. And then he goes into the, the, the presence of God and he, it's as if he gets, it recalibrates his thinking, right? He gets a handle on the real perspective, which is it doesn't matter how at least it seems that the wicked are prospering, they are going to give an account for what they do, right? So their, their, their ultimate end is determined. God is fully aware of what they're doing, and He's going to bring justice in that situation. And not only that, but then He's comforted by the fact that He knows God is counseling him, right? He kind of gets a handle on the fact that God actually does have His eye on him, and that God has been counseling him and guiding him all along the way. So, Again, it's, it's, about, it's about perspective. 
It's about thinking, and thinking is the fuel that feeds emotions. So these things are not disconnected. Our feelings flow out of our thinking, which means that a sustained emotion cannot exist without a sustained thought. Okay? you got to get this, okay? A sustained emotion cannot exist without a sustained thought. That What that means is that you might occasionally struggle with fear or occasionally struggle with anxiety, but if you are consistently and as a pattern in your life dealing with fear and, and anxiety and worry, you cannot consistently deal with that without consistency in your thought pattern. You are turning these things over and over and over and over again in your mind. And that's why you have this sustained emotion. In fact, I, people that we counsel that will say, well, you say, well, I want you to, I want you to me- we're going to memorize Philippians 4 and that passage on anxiety and, and, and prayer. And they say, well, I can't memorize scripture. I mean, I've, I'm so bad at that. I mean, I've just never been able to memorize scripture. <laughs> we tell warriors... <laughs> You are a professional meditator. I mean, you ha- the, the, the capacity to turn things over in your mind every day, sometimes every hour, minute by minute, moment by moment, you are constantly reviewing things in your heart and mind. You're just not meditating and reviewing and rehearsing the right things, right? You can memorize Scripture, you just got to learn to take all of this stuff, this garbage, right, and these things that are unbiblical and untrue, take those things that the world is feeding you, that your own flesh is feeding you, that, that part, that, those things in your mind that need to be renewed. You've got to get that stuff out, and you've got to replace it with the truth and begin to think on those things and meditate on those things and dwell on those things. It's a powerful truth that we have to latch on to in this battle with sinful fear and worry. So you can't stop life from happening all around you. Your heart is continually trying to sort of make sense out of all these things. Your feelings feeding, are feeding off of your thinking, and then you act, right? Which means that your actions are rarely ever bizarre as well. So the world is quick to give their own explanation. It's schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, multiple personality disorder, social anxiety disorder, all these things. But I'm saying your actions are rarely ever bizarre, Right? If you knew what was going on in your heart and how you have been interpreting life, it would make total sense to you why you did what you did and why you continue to do it. Right? If you actually could, could understand what's going on at that thinking and that desiring and that, that level of your, your worldview and, and your belief system. So actions flow directly out of what you've been thinking and feeling. And if you continue to think and emote and act, because that's the process, think, emote, act, think, emote, act, right? Because emotion is meant to cause you to act, right? And so that's the way it goes. You think about things and interpret them, which generates an emotion, and then that emotion causes you to do something, right? It gives you a push. But if you continue to do that, thinking, emoting, and acting in the same direction, your character is eventually shaped by the dominant patterns of your heart. And so you end up with these ingrained uh, issues of character, and then, and then you have these actual habits that are formed as we carry out these things, and we actually conduct these behaviors, and we do that time and time and time again. 
So even though there, there may be organic and physical components at work, and again, there are some. I mean, there's, there's legitimate things that cause uh, uh, feelings of, of depression or anxiety. I mean, there are legitimate physiological things, but it's mainly our thoughts that determine what we feel. It's our thoughts, our beliefs, our convictions, and our interpretations that direct our emotions. Now, the question is, well, where, is that in Scripture, right? I mean, I could just be some, like, some like therapist up here, right, just giving you some, some advice that I, th- I think this is the way emotions work. No, I think there's plenty of examples in Scripture of this. Uh, Cain felt angry. God, God pointed this out, right? Cain experienced anger. Why did Cain experience anger? Well, because his, his offering was rejected, right? Now, what the guy should have done is repented at that point, right, but he didn't do that. And so he was unrepentant, so he had a guilty conscience. He made another bad decision, right? And so he's frustrated with the fact that God is not doing what he expects God to do. You remember Jonah in Jonah chapter 4 where, where God asks Jonah, he says, Jonah, do you have a good reason to be angry, right? Why was, was, was Jonah just sort of randomly angry? What was Jonah, what was he angry about? That God was doing what? Uh, God was showing mercy, Right? So that's, that's, now that's different, right? I mean, you have a problem with God, right? You have a problem with God showing mercy to a group of people. You have prejudice in your own heart, right? Now we're talking about thinking. Now we're talking about beliefs and convictions, right? Uh, Psalm 31.7, David was glad because he believed God saw and understood his afflictions. He says this, I will rejoice and be glad in your loving kindness because you have seen my affliction, you have known the troubles of my soul. David had a conviction that God had seen his affliction and that God knew about the troubles of his heart, and that's why he rejoiced. So he says, I, I rejoiced and I was glad because I believed something, right? I guarantee you if David didn't believe that God cared or he didn't believe that God would show compassion, he wouldn't have been rejoicing, right? Right? At a very different time in David's life, David was depressed. Psalm 32, you might be familiar. David says, When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me, but my vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. Why was David in despair? Why was David in despair? Because he's not rejoicing in this, this psalm, right? This is the next psalm. It's the one right after Psalm 31. He's not rejoicing and he's not glad, but Why? Because he was covering his sin, right? He, he wasn't clearing his conscience. So very, very different response on David's part. Different, different circumstances going on. Different thought pattern that David had. You see this in 2 Corinthians 7. Paul was, again, joyful in the midst of tribulations. Why? Because of what God was doing in the, doing in the lives of those to whom he ministered. So he's, he actually mentions at the end of chapter 7, he's confident that God is working among these people. That's what allowed David to to rejoice in the fact that he was being afflicted in the way that he was. So think of it this way. Thoughts are the initiators. Emotions are the indicators. Thoughts are the initiators of the negative emotions of anxiety, fear, panic, frustration, bitterness, anger, discouragement, despair, hatred, and so forth. And thoughts are initiators of the positive emotions of joy and peace, delight, and contentment, and so forth. And if that's the case, I would suggest that people who claim to have emotional problems actually have thinking problems, attitude problems, wrong desires, and wrong beliefs. So to say, 
I'll tell people this sometimes. I'll say, I, I have emotional problems. I'll say, no, actually, your emotions are working just fine. Right? Your emotions are simply indicating what you're thinking about. You have a thinking problem. You have, you have something in your, in your beliefs, in your convictions, in your doctrine, whatever. Those are the things that we need to, to drill into and to understand if you're really going to, to deal with these and battle with these things. So if we understand this process, we'll realize that emotion is a window into a person's heart. And you can learn a lot about a person if you can discover what they take joy in and what makes them happy and what makes them angry and what makes them disgusted and what they're afraid of. That is to say, emotions give us an occasion to trace back behind them to find out what's going on in the heart and to ask, what would produce that sort of emotion or that level of emotion? So emotions are heart indicators to alert us to possible problems you might even think of it as your spiritual sense of smell, right? It's like something, something's, you smell that? Something's on fire? Or is there something in the fridge? <laughs> you know, what do, we, what do we do with those leftovers? Did we ever throw those leftovers out? Do you smell that? It's like your sense of smell that just says, we need to check into that, right? It's alerting us that something's not quite right. And I'm saying our emotion can serve that very same purpose, right? Our emotions can alert us to the fact that there might be a problem in our hearts. Uh, we'll, we'll stop there. Uh, the last thing I'm just going to mention, and we'll just come back to this, is that Jesus is the model for understanding all of this, right? I mean, Jesus is the perfect man. He experienced a, a, a rich, full, emotional life, but Christ's emotions always flowed out of a pure heart, right? His, his emotion was always captive to God's will and God's glory. And so we can learn a lot from him and how he experienced these things and yet those things were brought under the control of the Spirit and always governed by, by the truth. So we'll come back and we'll just hit on that next time. And then I say we'll go back, Lord willing, into that Luke chapter 12 and draw out some implications from that. And then the, the next week, uh, hopefully, we'll talk a little bit more specifically about anxiety what worry is in the scripture, um, and then look at uh, most likely First Peter chapter 5, which speaks directly to that as well. So we'll just try to get into some of those passages and un- unpack them and, uh, and get down to some very, hopefully, some helpful uh, practical things there. Okay? All right, folks, uh, thank you for your time.